Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gifts of today, that you already have given many of us our daily physical bread, and now we ask for our daily spiritual bread, which you promise us. Help us to get to know your Son better. Help us to become more fully alive in Him. Amen. So many of us have followers on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and sometimes we follow a particular celebrity, avid spectators of their daily activities, the things they're reading, their diet and fashion choices, their relationships. Well, Jesus had a lot of followers. We're told that whole crowds of people followed him. He also had his live-in followers called disciples. So why did so many people follow Jesus? Throughout his ministry, he uh, was a great storyteller. I'm reading a book right now about four presidents, and they were all great storytellers. But Jesus wasn't a person you came up to and simply asked for his autograph. You asked for healing, and he healed you. He was a great healer. And yet the question that hung over Jesus throughout his ministry was the question, who is he? After Jesus rides into Jerusalem, people are asking themselves or each other that very question. Who is he? And some people are responding, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word prophet seemed to be the most appropriate, at least seemed, it seemed to be the safest way to answer the question, who is Jesus? And yet he was unlike most other prophets. I mean, he could tell it like it is, and at the same time, he was strangely drawn to sinners. He was attracted to them, loved eating with them, attending their parties. That was very different for a prophet. He said he came not for good people, but for people who were sick at heart and poor in spirit. He 
said sinners don't need a spanking, they need healing. And so he rebuked demons rather than sinners. Who is he? Who is this man? 2.4 billion people in the world today claim Jesus as their leader and Lord. That's a large crowd. And we could easily say that we're a bona fide religion. But is that what Jesus had in mind, to start a new religion? At the end, just before he ascended to be with his father, he told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, this whole idea that Jesus is a prophet um, doesn't uh, quite contain him as he's going through this week. In fact, as the week progresses, and even through this particular way of entering into Jerusalem, Jesus begins to suggest that he's something more than a prophet. He begins to say and do things that people would associate with being the Messiah. And... Uh, when Jesus is brought before the authorities at the end of the week, he finally admits, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And instead of being excited, the Jewish leaders became extremely angry, tearing their clothes, spitting at him, crying out blasphemy. But why? And why, when, when Jesus was presented to the crowd later, I'm sure there were some of the people who had cried out Hosanna to the son of David just a few days earlier who were now crying out crucify him. What had changed? I think the main problem is that if you're a Messiah, there are certain boxes that need to be checked. Like establishing a rule and regime in Jerusalem. Getting rid of Israel's enemies. Imposing the law of Moses on the entire land getting rid of sinners, um, rebuilding the temple, or at least making sure that the glory of God finally returns to the temple as in the days of Solomon. It means establishing justice in the land. It means that people who, who had lost their property because of high taxes would get their property back. Taxes would be lowered. Debts would be forgiven. Slaves would be freed, and even prisoners would be set free. Those were the sorts of things that were supposed to happen when the Messiah came. And here was this person initially in front of the authorities and then in front of the crowd, and they realized that none of those boxes had been checked, which made Jesus not only a false prophet, but a false Messiah. And false prophets in the Old Testament were supposed to be executed. Plus, I think something just snapped in, in the people's hearts and spirits. We're so disappointed. Here's Jesus with a crown of thorns crushed into his skull, his face bloodied, spittle on his face, his clothes tattered. So who is Jesus? That question... Um, is probably the most important question that has ever been asked and the most important question that we will ever answer. There's a word that surfaces five times in the course of 14 verses, going back to the 
healing of the blind men just prior to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and continuing through the story. It's a word that is, the, is one of three words that make up the earliest confession of the church long before the Apostles' Creed. It's the confession, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The word Lord surfaces five times. But what does it mean? Well, one meaning of the word Lord is master. And so when Jesus sends out two of his disciples to a, a town called Bethany, where they're going to find a donkey, actually two donkeys, which we'll talk about in a few moments, um, they're to uh, simply untie that donkey and bring it to Jesus. Um, and of course, they would do what the master told them to do because he was their master. If you were a student of, of a rabbi, a live-in student, a disciple, you were expected to do whatever the rabbi told you. He was their master. And whether or not it's, it obviously had something to do with their instruction, whatever he asked, you did. And you did it gladly. You loved your teacher. The relationship you had with your teacher was the most intimate, the most important relationship in your entire life. If your father and your master, your rabbi, died on the same day, you can imagine that in a time of plague, you would always give preference, preferential treatment to your master. You would see that he was buried before your father was buried. And in the case of Jesus' disciples, they loved him. They loved serving someone who served them so well. In the previous chapter, the disciples got to talking about their learning and, and their discipleship and suddenly began to argue with one another about which of them is the best student, the best disciple. Maybe beginning to jockey for position as to who will be at the right hand of Jesus, maybe the right and left of Jesus when he enters his kingdom. And Jesus stops them and says, that's not how it is in my kingdom. We don't lord it over people here. If you want to be a leader, and that's fine. In fact, I have called you to be the leaders in my kingdom. Then you need to see yourself as the slave, the servant of everyone else. I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. Recently, an Italian priest by the name of Don Giuseppe Berardilli was afflicted with COVID-19, needed a ventilator. His congregation, his parish, bought him a ventilator. But when it was offered him, he refused it. He knew there weren't enough ventilators for everyone. He insisted that someone else take advantage of that ventilator. And he died. Why did he make that choice? I have to believe it was because he's a follower of Jesus. He realized that he was here to serve rather than be served. And it was important that he be willing to give his life for the freedom and healing of others. And so one meaning of the word Lord is master. And you obey your master. Another meaning of the word Lord is king. We're told in, in verse 5 
actually it's a quote from the prophet Zechariah, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the word Lord can mean king. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate put a sign at the top of his cross saying, King of the Jews. He probably did it to have the last word on those, on those Jewish leaders that had really kind of forced him into crucifying Jesus. But also to give a warning to anyone who claimed to be an, an un, unauthorized ruler or king. Um, this discouraged anyone from even suggesting they were something that was a king not approved by Caesar. And Pilate was right. Jesus was the king of the Jews, but he wasn't only the king of the Jews. Whenever you find a quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, you want to go back to the passage because the author is almost always wanting you to be aware of all that's being said there. And in Zechariah chapter 9, just after we read about this, uh, this king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, we read, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus' vision and ambition is not just to rule over Israel, but the entire world and planet. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And, you know, we, we, we don't understand the idea of a king. I mean, we read it in books, and, and yet it's not something we emotionally grasp very well. The British, they still have their queen. But the whole American Revolution was fought with the purpose of getting out from under all of that. We pride our individuality, our freedom, our authority over our own lives. And yet when you have a king, he's the one you give your allegiance to. And I think sometimes when we share the gospel, we emphasize so much the benefits of following Jesus. And there are incredible benefits. The forgiveness for past, present, and future sins. The offer of a personal relationship with God. The gift of his Holy Spirit. And, and the promise of a place in his future and eternal kingdom in the age to come. Great benefit package. But it's not like we compare kings who offer different benefit packages and choose which one we think is best. He's king. He's Lord. He deserves our allegiance and our devotion. And yes, there are a lot of great benefits, and he's an amazing king, but he's king. And so, that's an important aspect of the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is the king, and he, de he, he deserves our, our allegiance and devotion. He's, uh, he's worthy, and yes, he's also worth it. Saying that he's our king is uh, saying that we're willing to surrender our will to his will, our authority over to his. And that, you know, that's something we're not very comfortable with. I remember 
when I was uh, a young Christian, I was hanging out with a group of Christians, and, and uh, they suggested that we change kingdom to kingdom. Uh, you know, that, that, you know we, we, we didn't like the whole idea of authority, and you know, the, the, the community of faith is a family, so we use the word kingdom rather than kingdom. And I regret that now. Jesus is king, and we live under his authority, but here's the deal. We give him our authority, and then he shares with us his authority. That's what it means to pray and to speak and to act in Jesus' name. It's to speak and pray and act with his authority. And this fits into that, that theme which I've periodically talked about, that is really the theme of the, one of the key themes of the whole Bible. We were made in the image of God, and we were told immediately that as people made in the image of God, we were made to reign, to rule over creation. And then when we look to the end of the book of Revelation, we're told that we're going to co-reign with Christ. And as Dallas Willard says, right now we are being trained to reign. That's a part of our discipleship. And so, as, as people who, are, who give him our authority, he gives us his authority. And Matthew really emphasizes this. For example, it's in Matthew that we read the words, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, says Jesus. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'll let you make the rules. You need the practice. My brother is someone who believes that God has given him that authority, including the authority to heal, to cast out demons. And he has the most amazing stories of God using him to do both those things among the Orma people in eastern Kenya. He's done it with people in this country as well. But I also know my brother is someone who has surrendered the authority over his own life to God. And I think there's a connection. When we surrender our authority, Christ shares with us his authority. And we may not all have the same kind of authority my brother has. All of us are given a particular responsibility and authority wherever we live, work, play, and learn where our sphere is. And we have different gifts and talents with which we exercise that authority. But Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. One thing we all do is pray. Pray in Jesus' name. And that means we expect that God has heard us, and if it's in line with his kingdom objectives, that he will answer our prayers. And even when he doesn't answer them in the way that we had hoped, let's say he allows us to go through adversity and suffering as he did his own son, then he intends to use that adversity to form and shape us into leaders. Again, we're being trained to reign, and all the presidents I, I'm reading about right now went through hardship and difficulty that was so essential for the formation of their character, something we've been talking about over the last few weeks, as well as their leadership skills and abilities. And so we're in a time right now where we, we have the opportunity to develop our character. Yes, we pray boldly in the name of Jesus for any number of things, even as we trust that our King and Master will use this time in our lives to form our character and develop our leadership. So Jesus is our Master, he's King. Third, he's Messiah. That's another meaning of the word Lord. 
Prior to our reading for today, we have the healing of two blind men. They cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David. No one's ever said those words out loud before. They're pretty dangerous words because they refer to the coming Messiah. And people tell them to be quiet. And they cry out all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus isn't just a king. He's a particular kind of king. He's the Messiah. In fact, he's the Messiah. There's only one Messiah. This is the one who was coming to save God's people. And the word salvation, while it literally means to rescue, over the course of time it had come to also mean healing and restoration and renewal and reconciliation. And so people were looking forward to when the Messiah would come to accomplish all those things. So was Jesus the Messiah? What about all those boxes that were unchecked? Well, we can check them. And the reason we can check them is Jesus actually checks all those boxes, but not in the way that many people were expecting. And that's so important when reading Scripture. Sometimes we take passages that are meant to be promises and we turn them into predictions, specific predictions as to how something is specifically and exactly to be done. When the specifics are meant just to help the people of that time imagine the promise and its fulfillment, how God chooses to fulfill that promise often looks very different. And so did Jesus come to rule? Absolutely. But not in the way that many rulers rule. Like I said, he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to especially take care of the least and the last and the lost and to draw them into his kingdom. And the idea of drawing, the idea of drawing people really fits with Jesus' leadership style, his ruling style. He's not interested in bullying people, coercing people, imposing his will on people. Like he said to his disciples, in my kingdom, we don't lord it over others. But that doesn't mean he's not a ruler. He forms an army, an army of disciples, learning his way of ruling, which is the way of love. He, uh, he forms a temple, which is actually his people who now become his temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Instead of ridding the land of sinners by judging them, he puts himself in the position of being judged on the cross for the sins of his followers and of the world. Instead of imposing the law of Moses, he talks about a new and better righteousness, the way of the cross. You see, the cross isn't just how we get into the kingdom. The cross is how we live in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And as far as justice is concerned, Jesus calls his followers to be the salt and light of the world. Wherever we live, work, play, and learn, we're to plant little seeds of, of justice, bringing well-being, bringing fair thinking, bringing blessing wherever we live, work, play, and learn. And Jesus said that his kingdom is real, his reign is real, but it's a kingdom that begins with little seeds and grows gradually. 
so he does check all the boxes. It's just not in the way that people expected. He is Messiah. And he forms this messianic community that's supposed to give people a sense of the kingdom of God. You see, the Messiah is a king that fits a particular role in a story. In fact, the story. A story that begins with creation and ends with new creation. He's the key player. And he forms a community of people that are meant to demonstrate as a city on a hill what life in the kingdom of God is like. Which brings me back to that whole thing of there being more than one donkey and more than one blind man. For a long time, I've been puzzled by Matthew's doubling. That's how scholars refer to it. I'd never really heard a very good explanation of it. He doubles the number of demoniacs. Um, this guy who, uh, who was naked, he was, lived outside of town, filled with a thousand demons. Um, he was so strong he could just break whatever chains people wrapped around him. But in Matthew's gospel, there's two demoniacs. Just as there are two blind men who are healed by Jesus. And what's really kind of strange and awkward, two donkeys that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. In fact, Matthew actually adds a word to the Old Testament prophecy. Instead of simply saying, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, he adds the word and, and on a colt, the fold of a donkey, suggesting two donkeys. Now, how Jesus pulls this off, I don't know. That would have been quite a sight. But if anybody can do it, Jesus can. So what's going on here? Well, the explanation I read uh, recently that really makes sense to me is that Matthew, according to, to, to uh, tradition, wrote his gospel to the community in Antioch, which by this point was really the center of Christianity, yet it shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. A lot of Christians, a lot of Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. And as we read throughout the New Testament, uh, it was hard being so different from one another. And for the Jewish people, many of them still lived by many of the Jewish laws. And it was just different living with people who didn't live by those laws, and vice versa. And, and so Matthew, I think in doubling, is referring to both communities or both aspects and parts of the Christian community. And in the case of the donkeys, so here's the older donkey, that, goes, you know, that represents Israel going all the way back to Abraham. And then there's that younger donkey, those Gentile Christians who just simply go back to Pentecost. And it's so important for the king and for the kingdom of God that they get along. And of course, they both have to be willing to come under Jesus in order for that to happen. And I think by doubling the number of demoniacs and of the blind men, Matthew was saying, you know, we were all blind in terms of being able to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Jewish people, Gentiles. And we all put him on the cross. And what could be more demonic than God's creatures nailing the hands and feet of their creator to the cross? I think we need some humility. Less finger pointing, less pride. The kind of humility our master had as he rode those donkeys into Jerusalem. 
And there's other differences. There are the differences of, of people who, uh, there are people who grow up in the faith. By then, there were people who had grown up in the church. And then there are the new Christians, sometimes having a particular born-again experience. There are Christians who gravitate towards tradition. They love tradition. And other Christians who love change and innovation. There are introverts and extroverts, contemplatives and activists, all of which makes it very, very challenging to share life together, which is really why we need Jesus and his spirit. We're to be a light to the nations that it's possible for people who are so different from one another to love one another. And so we submit to Jesus, our master, our king, our messiah, our personal preferences and prejudices and agendas. Jesus is Lord. Finally, the word Lord can mean God. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Jesus' case, he didn't just come in the name of the Lord, he bore the name Lord. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is often called Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that's significant is that God is referred to as Lord in the Bible. In fact, in Jesus' day, um, people never pronounced God's special name, Yahweh, out loud. It was regarded as being too holy. And so when his name was read, the reader would say, Adonai, or Lord. And the early church seemed to navigate, you know, there's, that there's God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet they're one God by referring to God the Father as God, and God the Son as Lord. And so Jesus is God. God emptied himself and became human so that we could know him. It's God who walked the dusty roads of Palestine, not being carried by servants, not even riding a donkey until now. It's God that mingles with that Passover crowd and ultimately offers himself up as the Passover lamb that year. It's God who allowed himself to be spat upon, a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, his hands and feet nailed to a cross. It's God who died, was buried, and lived again. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's our master. He's our king. He's our Messiah, our savior. And he is our God. And so who is he really to each of us, including myself? Is he my master? Is he my king? Is he my Messiah? Is he my God? 